Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I learned things about how to navigate in the world from what my caregivers leaned into and recoiled from. So much of the way we move through the world is influenced by those who raised us, from how we hold a fork to how we carry our bodies when we walk and talk. And hard stuff is passed through generations, too. Families who have survived famine might be more likely to teach their children to stockpile food. Those who survive violent wars or enslavement they may pass on lessons consciously or subconsciously to their kids. Trauma in a person over time can look like personality. Trauma in a family over time can look like family traits. And trauma in a people over time can look like culture. Resma Menachem is a trauma therapist based in Minneapolis. The killings of George Floyd and many other Black Americans at the hands of police have intensified the focus and urgency of Menachem's work. When a Black body is murdered on TV or we see that type of stuff, the impact of it is not just personal. We're dealing with the historical energy that has gone unresolved, the intergenerational energy that has gone unresolved. Menachem expects that racialized trauma will continue, but he believes that hard work by people of all races can bring meaningful change. My name is Resma Menachem, and I believe that racialized trauma is solvable. My co-host Ann Applebaum spoke with Menachem. Here's their conversation. So, Resma, to begin with, could you define trauma for us? What do you mean when you use that yeah. word? Basically, anything that happens that's too much, too fast, happens too soon or happens too long without any reprieve or limited reprieve is trauma. 
And how is that different from other types of pain or depression? Or is it the same thing? Are these things all related? They're, they're related, but the most important piece for me with regard to trauma itself is the stuck quality in the ideas or the stuckness in behavior. There's a stuck quality that over time begins to look like standard and begins to look like normality. Like you can have bad things happen to you and not get stuck, right? Trauma is about the stuckness of it. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how this became your area of focus. Two things. So, uh, I was in, I did two years in Afghanistan doing uh, uh, trauma work in Afghanistan. And during that time, all of the trauma that I experienced and saw, I had to override in order to give service to those people, to those military contractors and all of those people that was on those 53 military bases. I had to give service. So when they were dealing with suicide, when they were dealing with thinking about suicide, when the Taliban would come, would, would breach the compound, all of that different type of stuff I had to work with. I, in order to survive that, I had to override my own pieces. And so when I came back here in 2013, it wasn't until then that I noticed that my own trauma pieces started to unthaw and started to come uh, about. And so that's when the story of my grandmother came back. So when I was young, my grandmother, uh, Grandma Addie, She would lay on the couch and when she would lay on the couch, she would then put her feet across our thighs and she would watch TV or put her legs across our thighs and her hand would be on her hips. And I would always rub her hands and just be rubbing her hands and rub her hands while she was watching TV. And at one point I was comparing her hands to my hands. And what I noticed is my grandmother was a thin woman. She was a, a thin woman, but she had these big, thick hands, like like the thumbs had all of this padding on it. On the front, uh, in the palm, there was this padding on the back of her hands, and there, she had these thick digit fingers that looked different than the way her body was constructed. And so at one point, I was I was looking at her, and I said to her, I said, Grandma, why are your hands like that? Why, they has, why are your hands so fat like that? And my grandmother, without missing a beat, goes, oh, boy, that's from picking cotton. She looked at me and she said, boy, you ever seen cotton, a cotton plant? I said, no, ma'am. She said, cotton plant has got these burrs in it. And she said, my daddy was a sharecropper. So, and this is the tone that she's using now, right? She's going, my daddy had, my daddy was a sharecropper. And so at four years old, we had to walk up and down them rows and pick that cotton. When you reach your hands into cotton, it rips up your hands. Uh, Those burrs rip your hands up until calluses begin to develop. And so my hands bled for a long time until calluses started to develop. And so I was just looking at her and she said, yeah, that's why. And then she stopped right there and she turned and started watching TV. I did not remember that story. It it totally left me. And the reason why it came back is that the connections between trauma, my own trauma, her, uh, what she was going through, my own uh, issues with suicide and, and overwhelm and all of that different type of stuff, all of that came together to help me begin to kind of think about this idea around racialized trauma, how it shows up in the body, what it does in terms of embodiment, what are the protective mechanisms. So that's how I came to this piece. And that's why I'm so passionate about it, because 
People can move through it. They can metabolize that energy, but it doesn't come from just education. It doesn't come from just doing nice things. It comes from going through it so, so that, so that energy can be used as fuel for your freedom as opposed to fuel that incinerates you. And does trauma always manifest itself through physical symptoms? Most often, trauma has an embodied physical component that we don't uh, many times relate to the trauma that we've been exposed to. And I believe through interrogation, through excavation, I believe you begin to see how the physical pieces show up. But at the beginning, most of us don't equate physicalness with trauma. But in terms of my work, I do. So what are some examples of physical reactions to past trauma that you found? A classic one is not sleeping. Uh, Having a a, a bracing quality and energy that in which you have a sense that the next shoe is getting ready to drop, especially when we're talking like when I'm talking about in terms of racialized trauma, many people have neck pains or back pains, things that show up in their hips or things that show up in their psoas in the body. I've done a lot of work on um, the post-Soviet world, including in Ukraine and in in, in Russia. I worked on a book about the Gulag. I worked about a book on the Ukrainian famine. Mm -hmm. And these are also places where people have long legacies of memories of physical violence or parents who've, who've experienced physical violence. Is the kind of racialized trauma you're talking about different from that? Um, or is it, or are we talking about the same phenomenon, just, you know, playing itself out and differently in different cultures? So yes, when we're talking about um, the Second World War, when we're talking about gulags, when we're talking about those things, that is a trauma manifestation that is absolutely traumatizing. And with particular to America, with particular to colonial trauma that I'm talking about, my underlying piece is that we live in a structure by which the white body is the supreme standard by which all bodies' humanity shall be measured, and both structurally and philosophically. And what happens is, because of that organizing structure, what happens is is that any body that isn't housed in a white body is structurally deviant from that standard. That in and of itself is traumatizing. That's why I'm talking about the racialized trauma so we can get at the racial pieces and the underpinnings of those racial pieces as a way to trauma. So yes, there are some of the same effects, some of the same effects in terms of intergenerational pass down, some of the same effects in terms of historical pass down, in terms of persistent institutional pass downs, and then our own personal traumas. So yes, all of those things get organized around it, but I'm talking about it in a particular way as it relates to race. But are you suggesting this is something that is particularly to do with the American experience? So black no. Americans descended from enslaved Americans or is this, yeah. can, or, is, so or, is you, it, or is it more prevalent? I think it's more prevalent because if you look at, if you look at the islands in Jamaica and, and South America is that that's just where the boat stopped, where some of the enslaved people got off. Some of those white body supremacy pieces, the organizing structures of those also took place in those places, right? England, Portugal, Spain, Belgium, and France, those five superpowers created a sense of who was human and who was not 
and used used pigmentation as a shorthand for who was human and who was not. So all you had to do was look at somebody and you could tell whether or not they were savages or whether or not they were fully human. And that ethos has been woven through every place that the colonization went. What worries me about what you're describing is if it's something that affects everybody and if it's inescapable in a, you know, in a certain sense, how can it be solved? Is it, are we talking about group therapy? What advice are you offering to overcome this long legacy? It's not uh, inescapable. So the solvable pieces of this for me really is about beginning to have us begin to pay attention to what's slow, to what's showing up and not just override it or act like it's not a big deal. Actually beginning to say this is something that is an, an issue in terms of racialized trauma, that the ways that we have been organized show up as a means to protect us. And we must begin to develop communal ways, cultural ways of getting at those pieces, beginning at the vibratory aspects of it, the behavior and the urges of it. We have to begin to do that. That's what makes it solvable. And so communities of people have to begin to do this work. Could, could you maybe walk us through some of the things that you're suggesting people could begin with? I mean, what are the exercises, whether individual or communal, that 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 could be carried out? One of the things that happens when I'm working with bodies who have who who are experiencing racialized trauma, one of the things that I do is I begin to talk to them about moving their neck in a way that allows them to look behind them and find windows and find doors. Because the pass down has been what I call a traumatic retention. And the traumatic retention is that I learned things about how to navigate in the world from what my caregivers lean into and recoiled from. And so when I notice the bracing, the kind of vibratory bracing in their bodies, my nervous system also picks up on that and it becomes decontextualized in each successive generation. Time decontextualizes trauma. Time itself decontextualizes trauma. And so trauma in a person over time can look like personality. Trauma in a family over time can look like family traits. And trauma in a people over time can look like culture. So having people begin to look around, or if they come from a people that have been traumatized, begin to have them look behind them, look for exits, look for safe places where they can leave. Because for many of our bodies, we have not had that. And so the orienting is one of the first things I begin to do. Second thing I begin to do is self and communal grounding, beginning to have people have some sense, no matter how small, develop some sense, discernment in the body that they are present now, that they are in this space and in this time. So very small little things like noticing their butt on a hard surface, noticing their, their feet inside their shoes. Communities can begin to do this with each other. The third one is self and communal movement, beginning to move congruently and incongruently together to have some sense of communal alignment. And then the, the fourth thing is self and communal touch and verbalizing and wailing. Those are the things that I use to begin to help people move through these pieces. 
As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. 
um, in my work with people who've either experienced traumatic famine or um, incarceration, unfair incarceration in Soviet camps, as well as their children. One of the things that they often have said or have or have simply practiced in their lives is to join something positive. In other words, not to deny that it happened, but to throw themselves into a positive project, whether it's, you know, after the war, we all got together and we rebuilt Kiev or we constructed, you know, the Ukrainian independence movement in the 1990s. Um, and the, the experience of doing something positive for their fellow sufferers sometimes or for their um, for their compatriots, that was often the way to get over the trauma. Is that something that interests you? Uh, that a kind of, as I said, a positive political or social or communal project? Well, two pieces to that. Um, the examples that you used um, are all examples of the trauma actually stopping. There was a there was a stop point, something some there was some type of intervention and the trauma stopped. When I'm talking about indigenous people here in America and I'm talking about uh, black Americans, the trauma is persistent. It hasn't stopped. And so that's one key difference. Uh, the other key difference is that the idea of getting over the trauma is not the same as metabolizing the trauma. It, and let me say this. In the movement of doing something, you can begin to metabolize it. But I'm not I'm not suggesting that there is a getting over this. I am suggesting that the energy that exists with with regard to trauma, when it shows up, is designed to protect us, to help us to survive. The problem is, is that when we've gone through a prolonged period of time with trauma, that thing that we've been using in order to survive it doesn't just dissipate. You have to begin to metabolize that energy. Otherwise, the, the, the protective mechanisms that you've developed as, as survival now become decontextualized and you begin to use that as a standard. And so that's the difference. Let me shift the focus for a moment to COVID-19, um, because I'm wondering if there are things that we should all be thinking about and paying attention to, you know, in our bodies and our minds using some of your um, the work that you've done to address the trauma of this time so that we're less likely to pass it along or less likely to suffer it in the future. I realize that this isn't as profound or as as widespread or as multi-generational as racialized trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that, you know, there are a lot of people suffering out there. Is there yeah, is there something yeah. we should be aware of now? Absolutely. There's a lot, like, like, even though this isn't intergenerational. One of the things that we know that uh, mass amounts of death can cause a, a global stress on human beings. And we've all, we all know it, like being locked in a house and not being able to move like you're, like you're used to can create a, a, a weightedness to us, right? A lot of my work now is how to, he- is, is helping people begin to orient online with each other not for you don't have to do it for long periods of time but to see another face and to hear another laugh or to share stories even if it's not in person for right now can be helpful even though it's not the best it is something to have somebody else see your face and smile and say i'm glad you're here 
That is important. And I think that can't be shortchanged as just, well, it's just Zoom. Well, yes, it's just Zoom. And we need those types of things also. Working with trauma survivors has to be some of the, that must be one of the hardest things anybody can do. Um, Do you have advice for both for practitioners, but also for all the rest of us about Mm. how to be empathetic, you know, particularly at this moment, you know, without taking on the pain of somebody else, but, but sympathizing with them, helping them through difficult times. What's, what's the best way to do it? That really is a great question because one of the things that happens is that we don't account for what I call vicarious and secondary trauma, right? Many times when we're trying to help somebody who's been traumatized, we don't account for the fact that we can actually be traumatized by watching them go through it. One of the most important things is to check in with your body, check in with yourself on a regular basis. Do I have enough resource and room to be of aid to this other body? And if the answer is no or not quite, listen to that. So it is really a communal beginning to develop more of a communal sense of how we take care of each other and how we listen to what our bodies are telling us, as opposed to a um, a more of an individual sense. And that is we have to override every everything that's showing up in order to provide uh, uh, something for somebody else. And that usually works for a moment, but then over time, you start to notice things like anxiety and depression and sleeping stuff and eating stuff and all of those things that are indicators that you are overwhelmed. Do the ways that you think about racialized trauma ever change? Hmm. I'm thinking about the awful murder of George Floyd. It was so widely experienced across the world. Did that change how you think about your practice or does it shift how we should be thinking about healing trauma? So the first piece is that um, that the George Floyd trauma for me, in terms of my work, is an is a law is an extension of a long line of traumas that I've had to deal with here in Minnesota, in particular, with regard to um, uh, Jamar Clark, Belanda Castillo, all of these types of murders at the hands of the state. Um, when a black body is murdered on TV or we see that type of stuff, the impact of it is not just personal. We're dealing with the historical energy that has gone unresolved, the intergenerational energy that has gone unresolved with regard to murdering and the slaying of Black bodies, the persistent institutional energy when these particular things continue to happen. The thing is, is that the outpouring that you see is many times performative. It is not sustainable because it's not, there is no cultural container to hold a living embodied anti-racist culture and practice that can get at the structural white body supremacy. So what will happen is that people will have a response either of shock or a response of, of, of being mortified, but there is nothing to sustain the change of it as it relates to black and indigenous bodies. And so what you end up having is people going into shock and particular white bodies going into shock. And what happens over time is that you start to see online, you start to see the George Floyd pictures and the the Breonna Taylor pictures shift back to cats and people taking pictures of their food. 
is because there is no sustained culture around living embodied anti-racist culture and practices. And so for me, and with it, with regard to the white community, the white community has to begin to work and deal with that stuff and that energy and create culture to examine and interrogate whiteness and white body supremacy. So in my work, one of the things that I've been doing a lot is helping people begin to grapple with that this is about a cultural cultivation and evolution, not a performative action plan. That's what's been showing up since uh, with regard to George Floyd and the series of other murders. That leads me to the final question um, that we always ask on this program, but it seems particularly pertinent here, which is what advice do you offer listeners and for their family and friends? You know, how can they deepen their understanding of long term trauma and how can they help to heal it? Right. So my book is one of the first books to kind of bring, try and bring all of this stuff together. So one of the first things I suggest people do is get my grandmother's hands and then begin to study and work with some of the practices and information in the book. Begin to work with that individually, slowly. There is a uh, some other books and resources that I'd also like to uh, mention to you, Anne. One of them is Me and My White Supremacy by Layla Assad. Uh, White Fragility by uh, Robin D'Angelo, Radical Joy by Dr. Joy Lewis, anything from Adrienne Marie Brown or Rachel Cargill. And then then my uh, my website, resma.com, has a lot of free content on there, as well as uh, my Instagram. If they go to Resma Menachem, I do a lot of free videos up there for people to begin to work with this. Nobody wants to talk about race, right? Nobody wants to wants to embody what race actually is and the, the concept of our white body supremacy. Nobody wants to do that. I suggest in the white community that has to start happening um, um, now so this stuff is not passed on to our to, to children. In the in the black and bodies of culture communities, I think we have to start beginning to talk about the impacts of white body supremacy on us and how it has created in us things that we have 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 not addressed. So like structural issues around our sense of fraudulence, of imposter uh, and colorism and all of that different type of stuff, those pieces have to be dealt with in community. Start beginning to work with this stuff. We can no longer avoid it. If, if January 6th, if the attack of the American Capitol taught us nothing, is that this stuff is seething and simmering underneath. It has not gone anywhere. It is part of the bedrock of America. And if we don't pay attention to it, it will destroy us. Resma Menachem is an author and psychotherapist working in Minneapolis. If you or someone you know is suffering from trauma and in crisis, please seek help. You can call 800-273-TALK, 800-273-TALK, anytime, day or night. To learn more about racialized trauma and for additional trauma support resources, please check out the links in our show notes. Solvable senior producer is Jocelyn Frank. Research and booking by Lisa Dunn. Catherine Girardeau is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Solvable is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review it. It really helps us get the word out. 
You can find Pushkin Podcast wherever you listen, including on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts. I'm Jacob Weisberg. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.